0: Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 12 of Revelation, where we've been reading and interpreting the prophecy given about the woman and the dragon. Who are they? Grab your Bibles and find out as we continue our Journey in the Word.
1: That Jesus is the Messiah, Israel was longing for, that she was waiting for. He's the one that the Scriptures foretold that she would give birth to. He's the one the Scriptures said would be coming to rescue them, but what they needed rescuing from first wasn't their physical bondage. What they needed to be rescued first was their spiritual bondage, their spiritual condition. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do when he came to earth the first time. The truth is, when Jesus delivers a person spiritually... The rest works out. The rest works out. Maybe this is something we in the church, we need to get a grip on. I say this because far too often we we come offering Jesus to people, but but we offer him as the solution to their physical bondage that they're in rather than, than to their spiritual condition, which they really need. That's the deliverance that they need first. He came as a savior to free them from their physical bondage, from, or rather from their spiritual bondage that they're in to sin. We offer to them to, uh, for free to them for some bad habit, you know, to get them free of some bad habit, to get them free of some bad situation that's affecting them. And although he does desire to free people from those kinds of things, this isn't what he wants to deliver them from first. He wants the same order that he did with Israel. He wants to change here. He wants to deliver them from the bondage of sin that they're in, from the pain of sin that they're in, from the condition of sin that they're in. You recall the first thing that Jesus did when they brought the paralytic to him in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Mark 2, 1 says this. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, be healed. Did he say that? No, what did he say first? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot was going on in this. He was doing this because of the observers to make the point. But at the heart of it, it's the message of the gospel. Yeah, I want to heal you in other things. But what I really came to do the first time is this. Ultimately, if I do this, at some point in time, whether in this life or the next, it's all going to be completed. You're going to be free from all the other stuff. But this is the most important thing because I can heal you physically. I can deliver you from that situation that you're experiencing in your life. But if this doesn't get healed, it's all for naught. It's all for naught. You see, Jesus dealt with the man's condition of sin first, not the physical issue. When we make the physical issue, the physical need, the practical need, the focus, instead of the other, we get things out of order with people. And I think the church is getting things out of order today in a lot of places. There is so much emphasis on on giving Jesus as the solution to all their problems. And really, simply, we need to be praying that as a solution to their sin right? As a solution to their sin. Then we can address the rest, you see. But suffice it to say that here in this passage, this woman who John now sees is a symbolic reference to the nation of Israel and and to the child that she's giving birth to, Jesus Christ. We're building here, so stay with me, okay? But look on because now we're introduced to another character, another actor really in this future drama that's going to play out. It says in verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. No, Tolkien didn't write this. God did, right? It sounds like something right out of the Hobbit, you know? But here you go. John now sees another sign, another symbolic picture portrayed in heaven. And this time, it's what he describes as a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Now, again, based on the fact that John says that this is a sign, it tells us that this is not a literal dragon. But rather, it's something that has the characteristics of a dragon. Its nature and character is like that of a dragon. As another commentator said, he said his description symbolically suggests his fierce power and murderous nature, a picture of the fullness of evil in all of its hideous strength. But who or what is this dragon? Well, we know that a dragon is a form of what? A serpent, right? And we also know who in scripture is often portrayed as a serpent, or at least I hope you know, right? Satan. Satan. Throughout Scripture, Satan is presented as a serpent. And in some places, he's even referred to specifically as a dragon. Isaiah chapter 27 in verse 1 refers to him that way. Isaiah 51 in verse 9 refers to him in that way. And if you look down to verse 9 here in our text in Revelation 12, you will find that Scripture will again interpret Scripture because there is a direct connection made there because it plainly says this in verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, and here's the definition, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So we know. Scriptures just told us we know that this dragon is is none other than Satan and the rest of the things that John describes in our verse are things that depict the nature and the activities that he has engaged in already or will be engaging in during this pe- period of future history and if you, and, and and the fiery red color the fiery red color it represents his murderous nature like blood His murderous nature, the seven heads and the ten horns represent his earthly power and his kingdoms that he will establish as he reigns politically on the earth through the person of Antichrist. We'll we'll talk more specifically about that as we move into chapter 13. But the tale of the dragon that draws a third of the stars from heaven and throws them to the earth, it's a clear reference to the satanic rebellion that originally took place. The time when Satan rebelled against God and took with him a vast host of the angels who are now the demons of his domain. Here's an interesting thought to ponder. We often speak about the free will of man, how God allows us human beings to make our own choices spiritually in other ways. But do you realize the angels also have, or at least they had, free will? at least to some degree. If they didn't, Satan wouldn't have been able to, uh, to get them to reject God. You know, he, he wouldn't have been able to get them to head out with him on his own, nor would this multitude of angels have, have been able to, to, to draw after him like this. I know that there are those who poo-poo the idea of free will, but do you know why I'm convinced it exists beyond the clear scriptural evidence that indicates it does? I believe it, indica- it exists because God's clear desire is to be worshipped freely by those that he's created. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped by those who, who, who he created, whether men or angels. His desire is that in the end, those who occupy heaven will be those who will be there with him. Those who have chosen to be there with him. Those who want to be there with him. He doesn't intend for heaven to be a place inhabited by a bunch of automatons that he's created or, and, and forced to be there by removing their free will, but simply creating one to be there and one not. If he wanted that, there'd be no point to any of this. And, and why even create the garden and put Adam in the garden? Why allow Eve to be in the garden and, and to allow him to sin like they did? He allowed these things because he wanted his creation to make their own choices so that in the end, those who would be with him into eternity would be those who've chosen to be there. That's why God allows us the free will to choose or to reject him. And that's why the angels were also given the same freedom as well. Now, I want you to think clearly about this for a moment. In light of what we look forward to at some point in the future, think about the fact that there is literally coming a day when those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ will be in the presence of God because we want to be there not because he's forced us to be there. I understand we can't get there on our own. We couldn't have gotten there even if we wanted to be with him. We couldn't be with him if he wouldn't have done what he did for us. And that's why even before the foundation of the world, Christ was crucified. That didn't mean he was physically crucified. It means that the plan was in place for his crucifixion to redeem those who were seeking redemption. But he put it in place. He put a plan in place because he knew he was giving us free will. And for those of us in our... Our choice of free will to say, I want you. It wouldn't have been enough to simply say, I want you. We couldn't attain it on our own. So he put the plan in place so we had the fallback. So that we had the means of now being able to, to, to have that desire realized to be with him forever. But think about this one day when we're standing in heaven. No more mixed crowds. No more, no more mixed crowds. Heaven, heaven's going to be a place where, where those who are living there have, have all chosen to freely give themselves to God, totally, completely, without any hesitation or reservation. Just imagine what that's going to be like. Think about it for a minute. Imagine how spiritually charged a place that's going to be like. This is why, beyond the scriptural evidence, I believe in free will. Because without it, heaven would be something less than this. Without free will, it wouldn't be the same. Without free will, people might worship God, but they do it because he ultimately made them do it, because he programmed them to do it. And no matter how you look at it, that doesn't yield the same results that a choice makes in worshiping him. My choices are imperfect. My choice to love God is extremely imperfect. I can be loving him with all my heart today and tomorrow tomorrow. He's kind of looking at me going, who are you? You know, as my heart drifts, my attention gets off to other things. But at the end of the day, he doesn't make it about the perfection of my choice. He's just making it about my choice. And he's saying, you've chosen and I choose you. Because you've chosen me, I've chosen you from the foundation. And I've got a plan for you. And I've got a heaven and an eternity waiting you. And I'm just telling you guys, I cannot wait worship was great this morning but i'm just telling you this it doesn't hold a candle to what's coming when we're standing in the midst of all god's people and we're undistracted and and everything is about the one that we now see our hope realized in our choice realized in some people say you know i i want to continue on my life i hope jesus doesn't come too soon oh, you just don't understand you don't understand you're losing nothing you're losing nothing and gaining everything when that day comes. Everything. But back to our passage. So we know from this description that Satan, John, that it's Satan that John's now seeing. And look at what he tells us he'll be doing during this period on earth. Look again. He goes on in the latter half of this verse. We'll pick up in verse four. It says, his, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. John says that he sees Satan, the dragon, standing before this woman, waiting to devour this, this child that she's ready to give birth to. In other words, he sees Satan just waiting to destroy who? Jesus. And we know that's exactly what Satan was trying to do. We know this. He's been bent on the destruction of Jesus. He's always been bent on the destruction of Jesus and to devour him. We know he's attempted to do it on a number of occasions. He tried to do it when he was born by inspiring Herod to kill all of the children of Israel, two years old and younger, all the males, right? Get rid of them. Kill them when that didn't work, he tried to attack Jesus in other ways while he was living on the Earth. He attacked and tried to devour him spiritually, such as when he tried to tempt him in the wilderness, because if he could have gotten Jesus to give in to that temptation, it would have all been over. No, quite frankly, we'd have had a wickeder one than Satan on our hands. You see. He attacked him physically through the violence of the cross. Satan has always sought to destroy and to devour Jesus. But more than this, Satan has sought to destroy the things associated with Jesus. In particular, he's aggressively sought to destroy those who gave birth to Jesus, the Jews. And this is what he's going to be doing again in the future. Because look at what verse 6 goes on to tell us. It says in, actually in verse five, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God in his throne. We've already looked at that verse, but then he says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. John now sees this woman fleeing into the wilderness to escape Satan who is trying to destroy her. Now this won't be anything new. Satan has always been seeking to destroy those associated with Jesus' physical lineage. In fact, Satan's attempt to annihilate the Jews has been an overriding theme throughout history. He tried to initially do it through Cain when he killed Abel. He tried to do it through Pharaoh and Haman and Herod and Hitler. And now he's trying to do it through a lot of the nations that surround Israel today, using them against her, trying to eliminate her, trying to destroy her. And the truth is, and this is a sad truth, but the truth is he's even trying to do it through the church today. He's even trying to do it through Christianity today. He's insidiously trying to turn us on the Jews by convincing us that God is finished with them by convincing us that they represent evil because of their role in the crucifixion of our Savior. Yeah, well, let's remember, our Savior is their Savior. And convincing us that because of this, we, the church, have replaced them, and that as such, they have no real value to God any longer. I am absolutely burnt up over this nonsense, because I see people that I've respected that are now going down this road, and I see it for what it is. But you know what? It's not surprising because even great, great church reformers like Martin Luther, I read something to you a long time ago, but even Martin Luther was a pawn of Satan when it came to the Jews. He may have done lots of good things for the church, but, 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 but when it came to the Jews, he was insidiously used by Satan to turn against them. It's interesting, in in one of his writings he went so far as to say the following the Jews were inherently evil and that they should be destroyed. He referred to them as venomous beasts, vipers disgusting scum, devils, incarnate He suggested their private houses must be destroyed and devastated He said that they could be lodged in stables. He suggested that the magistrates burn their synagogues and let whatever escapes be covered with sand and mud. He said that they should be forced to work and that if this avails nothing, that they should be expelled like dogs in order not to expose the rest of the world to incurring divine wrath and eternal damnation from the Jews and their lies. In fact it was his writing piece that was the chronicle of all this called the Jews and their lies. This is the very Martin Luther The very Martin Luther, the the great reformer of the church that, that probably the church has ever known, of whom God used powerfully to break the yoke of the Catholic church, the man who understood the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, yet even he turned on the Jews like this in his theology. Why? Because Satan manipulated and used him in order to get at those that Satan hates most, the Jews. Now, why does Satan hate the Jews? Because of what they represent. Because of what they represent. Because of what what they mean in regard to Jesus and his work of redemption in the world. And before Jesus came, Satan focused his attack against the Jews in order to prevent Jesus' birth. But now that Jesus has come and fulfilled his work on the cross, Satan's goal is to destroy the Jews in order to undermine and discredit the promises of God and to keep his redemptive work from being fully worked out. You see... If there's no Jerusalem, if there's no Israel, if there are no Jewish people, then how can Jesus ever fulfill the prophecies of his return to rule and reign over them as he's promised throughout the prophetic scriptures? And if he can't fulfill his promise to them, then how can he fulfill his promises that he has made to us? Do you see how it's all tied together? It, it seems like a thin thread, but that thin thread is taught. And one link out of that makes the entire thing collapse. If this were to happen, God would be untrue to his word. It would make God a liar. And thus it is, we would find that Jesus would be powerless to overcome Satan's rule and authority over creation. So in Satan's mind, the Jews, they're the linchpin. They need to be destroyed. They need to be destroyed even more than we need to be destroyed. And, And it'll be during the tribulation period that Satan will be bringing everything to bear against them with one goal in mind eliminate them completely wiping them and any record of this, their existence from the face of the earth people often ask why there's such an intense and unreasonable hatred of the jews in the world today now you know the reason it's right here now you know the reason it's not an earthly reason it's it's a supernatural one and satan is at the heart of it the hatred of the jews emanates from satan himself who is just waiting to devour that child waiting to devour that child and to destroy that woman. And as Satan turns his focus on the Jews during the future period of history, John tells us that they're going to be fleeing for their lives into this this place that he terms as the wilderness. A place where God says he's he's prepared a refuge for them. A place where for 1,260 days, we've heard that number before, which equates to how many years? Three and a half years, right? By the Jewish calendar, A period which equates to the last, I believe, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, of the seven-year tribulation period. God will personally protect and care for them. You see, this is the moment of Satan's wrath where it correlates directly to something that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24 that a lot of Christians get confused and apply to themselves, but I believe that he was speaking specifically to Jews here. But on that discourse, as he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples said, how do we know when your coming is hand? What will be the signs that will precede your coming? Jesus says this beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now I know that there are some who teach that Jesus is giving a warning to the church, who who these folks believe that they'll be going through at least a part of the tribulation up to this point, but I do not believe in any way shape or form that Jesus is referring to the church in this passage, but rather he's referring to the Jews. I say this because it's the Jews who will be the ones who will be in a position to see the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist will be, you know, committing this in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem when he will march in and demand to be worshipped as God. It's the Jews who will be on their housetops. I mentioned that before, but when I was in Israel, I saw the lounges up there. Why? Because it's hot. And, and you catch the breeze off the Mediterranean up there. It's the Jews. I don't sit on my rooftop. I don't even like going up there because at my age, I'm afraid I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to fall off a step stool, let alone get on the roof. They get on the roofs and they're flat. They're built for it. He's talking to the Jews. It's Israel will be on the, hot, uh, on the housetops in that area, on their homes where they gather to relax and to enjoy that, those cool Mediterranean breezes. And it's the Jews who will be the ones who will be concerned with their flight on the Sabbath. Because only in Israel does everything pretty much come to a halt on the Sabbath. Public transportation systems, gas stations, etc. It's not a warning being given to the church. Even the, the language itself, and I know we look at that because we hang on that word elect. Oh, that's talking about us. No, it's not. The most common usage of that word elect is to the Jews as the elect people of God, originally elected by him to represent him in this world, you see not a warning being given to church, but everything about it tells us that this is a warning being given specifically to God's people, Israel, to the Jews who will be living during this time in history. Because the moment Antichrist reveals himself for who and what he truly is, the day he commits this great abomination by walking into the temple and demanding to be worshiped by God will be the day that he will begin turning his wrath against the Jews, seeking to destroy and to annihilate them. In part, he'll be turning his wrath against them because they're going to refuse to worship him as he'll demand their worship. But for the most part, it'll simply be because of his intense hatred for them that'll be unleashed in that moment. And it will be for that 1,260-day period, that three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Jews will find themselves under the gun as, as, as this satanically possessed and motivated individual comes after them. Furthermore, Scripture indicates that he will, to some degree, be quite successful in his efforts to put a hurt on them because Zechariah chapter 13 Verses 7 and 9, referring to Israel during the tribulation, says this. Zechariah 13, beginning in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one third through the fire. will find them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Some people look at that passage and in particular those who who don't believe in the the prophecies being something in the future and they look at this and they say, well, wait a minute. You know, the the sword was against the shepherd, against the chief shepherd, against Jesus, and and yes, it 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 struck him and the the sheep were scattered, but you know what? You can't make that passage work out to what happened in Israel, at least up to this point. when, When the Romans sacked Jerusalem and took the nation, yeah, the Jews were scattered. But two-thirds didn't die. Two-thirds weren't cut off and died. This is talking about something future. If Bible scholars are correct in their interpretation of this prophecy of Zechariah, only one-third of the Jews will survive the tribulation. Two-thirds are not going to make it. Two-thirds are not going to make it. Now think about that. what that means in sheer numbers. Even though we know from other passages that, that some are going to die from these cataclysmic events that will be taking place on the earth along with other people. Remember, Revelation 11:13 13 told us that 7,000 of them are going to die when a great earthquake strikes Jerusalem. We just looked at that. And when the two witnesses are supernaturally resurrected, 7,000 will die. So by and large, the vast majority of Jews will die at the hands of Antichrist though. By and large, the vast majority of them will die at the hands of Antichrist. But Zechariah also clearly prophesies that God is going to supernaturally protect and bring a remnant through this terrible time of persecution. One third of them will survive. And this correlates with what we're now seeing happening here in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. The protected remnant is this remnant that John is now seeing fleeing into the wilderness to the place where God will protect them and feed them from his own hand. But where is this place? that they'll be fleeing to? Where is this place of protection that God will make? We'll come back next week and I'll tell you.